finally towards the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. A tremendous little book. If you haven't been studying with us, we know that God has a message in this book. You know, a man came over to me to see me just a while ago, and he said to me, he said, well, the book of Ecclesiastes, I understand, is the wisdom of man. I said, don't you believe it? It's a revelation from God, and it's concerning life under the sun with the sun. That's the theme of this book. This book does not tell you how to go to heaven. This book is concerning how you live your life here under the sun. That's the theme of this book. Now another thing he points out is to you as it says vanity. That is, your life is very brief. The word is the word for breath. It's very brief. Doesn't mean it's vain, just simply that it's brief, very quick, like a breath going out on a cold morning. It appears for an instant and is gone. Because your life, compared to eternity, is but a breath. Another thing he says is that it's a vexation of spirit. That's possible. It's possible for life to become a burden. It's possible for life to become dreary. It's possible for life to become empty. This book is written to deliver us from those lifestyles which would produce within us an empty life and show us the path of real life. That's what this book is all about. One of the major we've seen it is embodied in the four sections. The first we've already studied together is in chapters 1 and 2 where it speaks of the search for the path of life under the sun. And if you look back to chapter 2, and you look, please, at verse 24, you find the very theme he is hitting at. What is he emphasizing? Look at it in chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for the man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. That's what life's all about. God has given us a task to do. It is a good task. Each one of us, he has given us a task to do. He's put us on the earth to do something for him. And while we're doing it, we are to eat and to drink and enjoy this life. Then he goes on in chapters 3, 4, and 5 to point out to us the sovereign control of God over life. He controls the times and the seasons of our lives. And it tells us there in this chapter, and notice again, as he brings this chapter, as he brings this discussion to a conclusion, look please at verse, uh, in chapter 5, in chapter 5 and verse 18, look at it. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. Here's a conclusion again. To eat and to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Now this is not that hedonistic idea of eat, drink, and the merry for tomorrow we die. Not at all. We have a toil, we have a task which God has given to us on the earth, and while we are performing that task, we are to eat and to drink and enjoy life. 
That's how we're to live. Now, many people don't learn how to do that. One of the reasons is they get off on side streets, streets that go nowhere. So in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, he describes some of these lifestyles that you and I can get caught up in unknowingly many times. And these lifestyles, instead of bringing real joy into our lives, they bring us to dead end misery and vexation of spirit, as the, as the author of Ecclesiastes is constantly talking about. And so he tells us about these different lifestyles that we should avoid, streets that go nowhere. And then we have been studying now the last section of this book, which begins right in the very middle of chapter 9 and goes through chapter 10 and 11 and into the chapter 12, and this deals with the security in God's plan for life under the sun. We have seen that life is uncertain. None of us know what's going to happen to us as we take the next turn, as we make the next step. Life is uncertain. But for those of us who are walking with the Lord and trusting Him, we are secure in the midst of this uncertain day. And we studied already. We've seen how in the, in, in, back there in, in chapter 9, He points out to us the victory that we can have in the midst of uncertain days. And then in chapter 10, the faithfulness He expects out of our lives in, in, as we walk with Him in the midst of uncertain days. And now he's ending it all up and he's telling us to be prepared for our whole life that is filled with uncertainty. Don't be prepared for one phase of life. Be prepared for the whole of life as one faces the uncertainties of life, knowing that you and I are secure in God's plan. He is talking about that. He's telling us to be prepared. Be prepared. Now as we go on with this study, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll take the message of these verses home to each of our hearts, that we might be to your praise and to your glory and live upon this earth here under the sun with the joy with the vibrancy that you want of us. We ask you to do this for us in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. Now we have seen already that in talking about this business of being prepared, he issues three commands. Three commands. We zero in on the main one. Now that is chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. That's quoted all the time by people. But that's the third command. He precedes this by two commands. One we saw last week. We had an abbreviated time uh, to carry on the message last week because of certain events. But we were able to cover this part of it. The first command, rejoice. He says rejoice. Rejoice in the possession of life. Verse 7. Rejoice in the length of life. That should be number two up here. Rejoice in the length 
of life. Verse 8. Then rejoice in the vigor of life. That's only two. It should be three, you know. And then finally, rejoice in the accountability that you and I are to give for the lives that we live here on this earth. That's the first thing he's commanded us. It's the same thing we find over in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. You see, as he was pointing this out to us, he's not saying that life is going to be easy. He's not saying that the circumstances are going to be happy ones. He is pointing out that we are apt to run into all kinds of problems and difficulties. But in the midst of these, we need to thank God we're alive and to rejoice in the life that God has given us. Rejoice in the life that God has given us. That's what he told us to do. Then he brings out the second command, and I want you to see it there in verse 10. Look at it. He says, So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Now here's that third command. Remove. Put away. That's what he tells you to do. Remove what? Well, the first thing he says to us to do is to remove vexation from your heart. If you have a King James, it's the word sorrow. Remove sorrow from your heart. Remove sorrow. The NIV translates it, remove anxiety from your heart. What he's talking about here is that thing that happens to us as we let fear be built into us and we develop an anxious attitude towards things. A nervous attitude towards things. A dispirited attitude towards things. A self-pitying, complaining is the way it is. It, it, it manifests itself many times in our lives. Now he says we must remove this from We must remove this from When you move into a situation, a set of circumstances that are threatening, that are dangerous, either physically or emotionally or spiritually, when you move into such kind of circumstances, it's perfectly natural to be nervous and fearful and troubled. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Here we read the story of the greatest man who ever lived. His name was Jesus. We forget sometimes in our emphasis on the fact of the deity of Christ, we forget that he also had a human nature. Our Lord had two natures. 
the divine nature and he had a human nature. He was a real human being, possessing a human soul, a human spirit, and a human body, and all the gamut of human emotions and reactions to the things of life. You say, oh yes, but he lived as God. Wait a minute. When he came into this world, he surrendered the use of his godly powers to the commands of his father. And he lived under the limitations of his human powers and nature and would only use his divine power when God the Father told him specifically to use his divine power. Otherwise, he did not use his divine power. That was the conflict with Satan, remember? Satan said, turn these stones into bread if you're the son of God. Now, he had the power to do that, but he would not do it until God the Father would tell him, turn the stones into bread. He would live only within the limitations of his human nature. And that's a wonderful thing when you're studying the God of Jesus Christ, to realize that as God, he still walks as a man upon the earth, living within the limitations of his life as a man. And that's what makes the life of Christ so meaningful to, to those of us who are his and walking with him on this earth because he knows everything about our experience. Well, look at John chapter 12. As the shadow of the cross fell upon him, what does he say in verse 27? Now my soul has become troubled. Same word that they're trying to translate back here. Same concept that they're trying to translate with the word sorrow or anxious or vexed. You see, as he faced the, the, the terrible pressures of the cross, fear got a hold of him, and actually it says it from the book of Hebrews, he fears. Fear got a hold of him. You say, well, how is it? God the Son ever be afraid because he is also the Son of Man and he went through the human experiences and emotions that you and I had. And he faced that cross and he looked at it and he was troubled. But what did he say? Uh, he said, did I throw it all up now? He said, no. That this is the purpose I came into the world. And you see, there he's telling us exactly what the Kohelis is telling us back here in the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 10. When fear comes into your heart, when anxiety gets a hold of you, because of the turn of circumstances around about you, or many times because of things you don't even understand why you're being anxious, and fearful. He says, when this happens, what are you to do? Why, you're to remove it. You're to put it away. You see, whether you continue in anxiety or not, rests within your control. I'm really in God, but in your control. You are not to permit 
here to build up within you and to develop within you a pattern of anxiety. But if it does, then you must learn to remove it. And getting rid of anxiety is a pattern of living that must be learned. People are always coming to our counseling offices and they expect us to be able to give them one short little lesson that will teach them how to get rid of it all. And it isn't done that way. It is something that you must learn. But it's a responsibility to learn. We must remove it. You see? We must remove it. Now how? How do you remove it? Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians. Chapter 4. And look please at verse 6. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious about nothing. Now you say, I get upset. Good, I know you get upset. Oh, everybody gets upset. I've had news this week that has upset me deeply. But so what? What do we do? Well, now we have to remove that upset condition from us. We can't, we can't stop getting upset. Somebody comes along and says, oh, you're sinning because you're upset. No, 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 no. You just got caught into a, an uncertain experience, and it, the natural result is you become upset. Now, what do you do? You don't let it internalize and become a pattern of your behavior for the next three or four weeks. What you must do is to remove it. And how do you remove it? Well, he tells you here. Look at it. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all comprehension, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You say, that's easy to read, preacher. I know, dear ones, that it ain't easy to do. Just ask my wife, she knows all about me. No, it isn't easy, but it's there. How do we move it? We pray and we supplicate. So many of us are only ready to pray, but how about supplicating? You see, a supplicating means that you don't deserve God to help you. You're asking him for special mercy and you're begging him. And you bring this thing before God and you say, Lord, Help me. You told me to remove it. Now, Lord, help me get rid of it. And then the next thing is you thank God for it. And that's, uh, that's one of the times when Harold Dunning has trouble being not being a liar. <laughs> to thank God for it. And so mean it. It's easy to say praise the Lord, but it's another thing to say praise the Lord and mean it. Okay? We have thanked God for it. I remember that story that I read of a young woman who was going blind. Day by day, her eyesight was disappearing and her pastor was visiting her. And he said to her, he said, before it's gone, 
before he takes it away from you, give it to him. And right there and then that young woman turned her sight and gave it to the Lord and told him he could take it. And her whole attitude towards the situation changed. The anxiety was removed. She praised God. You see, you pray, you commit it to the Lord, you make supplication, and you commit it to the Lord, you thank Him for it. You thank Him for the problem. And then what does He say? Oh, look at that promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your heart. How? Oh, dear ones, I, I, I was puzzled me, and one day I was down visiting a dear friend of mine. I may have told you the story. She had just lost her mother, and I found her resting in peace as I visited with her. And I asked her, I said, Florence, what is the secret? What, what did you learn here that you, that you can stand in the midst of this trial with peace in your heart? And she says, the word of God says, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. She said, I just fix my mind on Jesus. And when the worry and the fret and the sorrow comes back, I just concentrate back on Jesus. And he takes it away by putting peace in his place. That's it. You and I have to remove sorrow. It's not going to disappear from us. We have to remove it. We have to remove this vexation. We have to remove this worrying, this anxiety from us. The next thing he commands there, he says, put away pain from your body. Put away pain from your body. I don't like that translation. You know why? Because it's absolutely impossible. How can you put away pain from your body? You see? The word isn't pain. The, uh, the NIV translates it, casts off troubles from your body. The New American Standard, I mean the, uh, the uh, King James, uses it, remove evil from your body. And the word... Translated pain by one and troubles by the other and evil by the other. The word is that broadest of all words referring to evil. Moral evil. Take moral evil out of your flesh. Remove it. Catastrophic evil. Take catastrophic evil out of your flesh. That's what he's telling us to do. That's the challenge. How do you remove moral evil? 1 John 1, 9. If you will confess, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Isn't that right? There's a precious truth. If we will just confess our sins, we know that he will forgive us and cleanse us, begin that great work of transforming us and taking the sin out of our lives if we will but confess it. That's how do we deal with moral evil. But how do you deal with catastrophic evil? How do you deal with a flood that sweeps through your home and ruins all your furnishings? How do you deal with, the, uh, with, the, with, the, with, a, with an accident that destroys your car? How do you deal with, the, with something that, that puts you, a loved one in the hospital? How do you deal with catastrophic evil that comes into your life? Well, first of all, you pray. 
Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, lead us not into trials. We pray for deliverance. Another one is that we walk by faith in the midst of those things. That's how we overcome them and put them out. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, will you please? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And look with me, please, at verse 13. No trial, no trial, no temptation, not merely temptation to commit sin, but no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That's what God promises. And then the next thing he promises, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tried beyond what you are able. The trial has been as surveyed by God, and he has already knows that this trial cannot overcome you. It will not defeat you. He has promised you that. See? No trial is going to come into your life that's not common to man. Secondly, he is going to be very faithful in helping you. Thirdly, not, that trial cannot overcome you. And the fourth thing he promises, but with the trial will, pro will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. He doesn't, he says you're going to come out of this trial. There's going to be an end to the tunnel. You're going to get out of it. The trial is going to be overcome by you and you can trust me in it. So what do you do with catastrophic evil? You handle that by walking by faith. And as it says over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, and in chapter 5, verse 10. Let's just look at that one. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. Look at it. And after you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. That's a promise he's made. You have to endure. You have to suffer for a while. But after you have suffered for a while, this is not going to destroy you. This is not going to hurt you. It's going to perfect you. It's going to confirm you. It's going to strengthen you. It's going to establish you. And that's how you deal with evil that comes into your life. If it's a moral evil, you confess it to God. If it is a catastrophic evil, you deal with it by walking by faith. You endure it knowing that he who controls all things is going to use this to work it out for his, your good. And the third thing he tells us, if you come back now to Ecclesiastics chapter uh, 11, verse 10 there, he said the, first, the third thing he says, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And he says, he says he wants you to remove the false security of thinking that you in your present strength are going to go on that way forever. You know, that's our trouble. When, when we're young, we think we're going to be young forever. We look in the mirror and say, hey, look at how beautiful I am. I'm going to be that way forever. No, you're not. You see? You're, gonna, you're, you're full of strength right now, full of strength and full of vigor. Listen, friend, that isn't eternal. 
not in its present form. And don't live your life as though you're going to have this strength, this ability forever. Do not be deceived. Don't be lulled into false security. And thus he warns us as he goes into chapter 12. He gives us the third command. Look at it. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. That's the command. Remember your creator. Remember he is the one to whom we owe our existence, our frame, our breath, our abilities, and all the things we have, including our loved ones. He created them all. He is our creator. Now remember him. Now what does that mean, remember him? Does that mean what so many people do? Say, oh yeah, I believe that God exists. I believe that God exists. Is that what it's saying? No. To remember the him. Remember the fact that he is our creator. And that means this, that you put him right in the center of everything you're doing. You're going out with your boyfriend, and you're with your boyfriend, and you're looking into his eyes, and he's looking into your eyes, and what a wonderful moment it is. Remember your creator right there between you. It's not two of you. It's three of you. You're there in the midst of the job, and things are not going too well. Remember your creator putting right there. You're not alone. He's with you. You're out with friends and enjoying things. You're laughing and you're having a good time. Wait a minute. Remember, he is there. To remember is to put him, his desire, his will, his standard, right in the midst of what you're doing. That's what it is. Now he says, why? Or when? He says, we're to do this in our youth. Why? Why? Look at it. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. What is he saying there? What he is saying is to remember and put God into the center of your life while you're a young man. Develop the habit of knowing that God is always with you and thinking of God as always with you. It's what is called in that famous book, practicing the presence of God. It's putting God learning. It, by the way, this doesn't come natural. It doesn't even come easy to the born-again Christian. 
This is something you must learn. You must learn to always put God in the center of everything you're doing. And you begin when you're young and you get, develop the habit of putting God right in the middle of what you're doing. Every moment of every time and every experience, God is right there. And you think of him, you relate to him, you put him right there in the midst of everything. Every experience of life, God is there with you. You develop that habit. That's what he says. Remember your creator. Develop the habit of remembering him and putting him right in the middle of everything. Because, he says, the days are going to come that you're not going to like. The days are going to come, as he says there, the years will draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. See? He says, redo this. Learn to put God in the midst of things before the harshness of old age encases one in its discouragements and fixations. That's what he said. And then he goes on to remind us in a very poetic fashion, in almost a humorous fashion, to remind us that we are to remember the fact of old age. And will you look at it beginning there in verse 3? He's talking about this day we're not going to delight in. He says, in that day that the watchmen of the house tremble, the arms that we use to protect ourselves and to take care of ourselves become feeble and we cannot use them much anymore. They actually begin to shake. See? And the mighty men stoop. The mighty men are the legs and they're no longer strong. They bend because they are growing weak. And the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. We've had several trips to the dentist, and the grinding ones are removed, and there's only a handful left. In fact, not even a handful. See? And he goes on, he says, and those who look through windows grow dim. See? You have these windows that you put over your face called glasses, but even with them, things now are out of focus and they grow dim no matter how many times you change them. It only gets worse. See? And then he moves on. He says, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. One person is relayed. One commentary relates this, he said, to the fact that you've having lost your teeth, the doors, you know, the lips begin to recede because of the loss of teeth to support them. That's one attitude to it. You've seen old people like that. Don't look at me, please. And then, but uh, then the next one, you notice, it says, none of them says, this is referring to the sound. You no longer begin, can hear well the sounds of life. And he says, and one will arise at the sound of the bird. It's an amazing thing. Old people can, they, they have difficulty hearing but the first chirp of a bird outside the window wakes them up. See? And one of the facts of old age, <laughs> you look forward to the day when you can retire and not get up at 5.30 and go to work. See? And you look, oh, I can lay in bed now until 8, until 10. So you, so you do, see? And you wake up at 6 and you lay there at 8, but you're wide awake while you're laying there. <laughs> 
And that happens. It's a reality of life. And the daughters of song will sing softly. Some of the most beautiful voices in the world, have you heard how they weaken and become cracked and no longer carry the tune? The daughters of song are weakened. Furthermore, men are afraid of high places. Very characteristic. We don't walk around in those high places anymore with the, with the comfortable feeling and security of youth. Oh, no, we're very gingerly as we walk among these things now. And it says there, it says, and the terrors on the road, <laughs> the journey. It used to be much of a job at all to go there, but now to get there is quite a journey, see, even to the corner store. And then the almond trees blossom. Ever seen an almond tree in blossom? Gray hair. The grasshoppers drags himself along. Have you ever saw, isn't, that a, isn't that a picture, though? The older one walking along, leaning on his cane, all hunched over. And then there comes perhaps the, this translation made me really laugh. The caperberry is ineffective. The other versions translate it, the, the desires shall fall and the desires shall no longer stir. And it refers to the natural drives of our human nature are no longer effectively pushing us as when we are younger. Now listen, people. This is as much of a fact of life as being young. And if you start to adding up your actuary tables and look at them, you are 20 years growing up, you're about 30 years of full vigor, and then you're about 30 more years of decline. And that's what he's trying to remind you of. Your life isn't going to be lived when you're young. Your life is going to be lived when you're young, when you're in the middle years, and when you're older. Now, remember your Creator and learn to put God in the middle of things when you're young so when you are that cricket that is going down the road, God is with you. I ran into one the other day and I want to tell you, this fellow was walking along and he just looked exactly like this. He looked up to me and he said, Hi, Pastor. He said, Praise the Lord. And he began to tell me about somebody he had witnessed to for Christ. You know that fellow? He's 80-some years old and he's more alive than you young people have ever thought of being alive because of the simple fact that he has learned to put God, he has remembered God, and God is a habit. He just walks with God day in, day out. He didn't learn it, and he's learned it from youth. That's the way, it's exactly what he's commanding us. And then he warns us about one more thing. He commands us to remember God because the fact of death. And for the first time, the first time, the author of Ecclesiastes stops talking merely of life under the sun and talks about life after death. Look at the end of verse 5, he says, For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. And remember, that is true. 
when you attend a funeral and you are there weeping for the one who has passed away, you are there weeping, but he is not there. He has gone to his eternal home. And for the first time, the Kohelet admits that there's life beyond the experience that is just life under the sun, that beyond this life under the sun, there is an eternal home to which we're going to. And you find that out by reading about it in the New Testament. Because life and immortality was brought to light through the coming of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection assures us beyond a shadow of a doubt that when this life under the sun comes to an end, that's not the end. We go to our eternal home. And he tells us more about it in verse 7. Look at it. He says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. That's the body. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. And I have one question to ask you in closing, my friend. When that day comes to you, and come it will, if Jesus tarries, no matter how young you are, no matter how much vim and vigor and vitality you have, no matter how much skill you have, no matter how much health food you eat, it's going to happen. And someday you're going to leave the body, and it will return as dust to this ground, and your spirit will return to God. May I ask you a very important question? What will God do with it? What will God do with your spirit when it returns into his hands? What will he do with it? The Bible tells us of some to whom God is going to say, Depart from me, ye cursed, into eternal damnation, for I have never known you. That is a fact. There's another tremendous passage where Jesus has said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will receive you unto myself. And when your spirit meets God, God just turns you over to Jesus, and you are in that place which he has prepared for you for eternity. Where will your eternal home be? May I ask you that question? Oh, if you're here and you've trusted Jesus, look to the cross of Calvary and realize that his blood has taken away all of your sin and has made you right with God. And when that final day comes and you go to meet him and your spirit returns to God, oh, it has been washed in the blood of Christ it has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and Christ receives you into the home which he has prepared for you for all eternity. But if you have turned away from what he's done for you, if you have never personally accepted him as your Savior, the alternative is your, will be your faith. And I plead with you to face that simple fact and remember it this morning, because you can be one among those whom he, though he loves you infinitely, because you are stained with your sin and have never been washed in the blood of Christ, have never accepted the cleansing and salvation from his hands, you, because you have turned away from him, he must say to you, I have never known you. Depart from me, 
and eternal provision. Dear ones, that's a fact of things. And as we face this, I ask you, what will happen to your spirit when it returns to the hand of God?